In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Raj Punjabi, head of identity content at HuffPost. And I'm Noah Michelson, head of HuffPost Personal. Welcome to Am I Doing It Wrong, the show that explores the all-too-human anxieties we have about trying to get our lives right. Okay, Noah, what is the current state of your gut health? Wow, no one has ever asked me that before. Listen, I ask the hard-hitting questions. I don't know. Um, I think that I eat pretty well. I do the 80-20 thing where five days a week I eat healthy, mostly veggie, a lot of fiber, um, and then two days a week is just balls to the wall and I do whatever I want. And that makes me pretty happy. Sounds great. And like I said in the pooping episode, like everything seems to come out in a pretty satisfying package. Love that. But I don't know that that's really indicative of what's happening inside of me. So I have no idea. What about you? My diet, although I try, it's pretty chaotic. So uh. I feel like my gut microbiome looks something like a Brooklyn dive bar inside. <laughs> like I, it, there's got to be chaos happening. I feel like you're not alone. I'm not alone. Everyone is talking about the gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. It's all over TikTok. You can't log on without hearing about it. But I don't think anyone really knows what it means or what no they're one supposed knows. to do. Yeah. No. That's why we are lucky to have Megan Rossi. She is the founder of the Gut Health Clinic in London. She's a registered dietitian. She received an award-winning PhD dissertation in gut health, and she's published over 50 scientific papers. But that's not all. She also got the British Nutrition Foundation Award from Princess Anne. And basically, she's like the queen of gut health. She's our gut queen. And she's here to tell us what's what. Oof, let's get it. Hi, Megan. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure, guys. So I think to start, we're hearing so much about gut health. And the term we keep hearing about is the gut microbiome. What the hell is that? Let's just start at the very beginning. 
Yeah, look, it's a scientific description of those trillions of microorganisms that live in our gut, but not just those bacteria. We also have the chemicals that they're producing. So that collection of the environment and those microbes is called our gut microbiome. And without getting too scientific, if we're just talking about the gut bacteria, we call that our gut microbiota. Okay. And just one more question of clarification, because it does sound, you know, at first glance, like an organ or something, but it's like the the bacteria and all of that in in a couple of organs, right? It's like intestine, stomach. Can you tell me like where it is exactly? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we have a gut microbiota. So that's, if we think about our gut being this nine meter long tube, mm-hmm. at that end, the last 1.5 meters is where we house most of that gut the microbiome. finish line, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we also have an oral microbiome and oh. we've got billions of microbes there. We've got a skin microbiome. We've got females, we've got a vaginal microbiome. So in each different part of our body, we've discovered we have this community of microorganisms. Okay, so I'm just imagining these like cute Pixar characters like swimming (laughs) around in our bellies. So just in the gut microbiome, can you tell me a little bit about the interplay or the roles of the good and bad bacteria in there? Yeah, exactly. So although we historically have said, you know, good and bad, I think it's probably worth us being aware that actually very few bacteria are actually really bad. Okay. It's more about the environment that they're in as well as kind of their dominance. So I think like humans, if, um, you know, we are you know, too much of all of in one community and we start to like have quite strong thoughts and domineering thoughts, oh, yeah. you know, that can kind of be seen as, you know, a bad community, right? Totally. But actually if we te- pick out like the individuals one-on-one that, you know, they're quite nice and friendly. Um, so the same goes with, with our gut microbes is that, you know, very few are actually you know, inherently bad. Uh, if we treat them well, they will then look after us. So I think that's the way we need to start to reframe that. Yeah. yeah. And is this also responsible for things like IBS? Is that a different... I feel like everyone has IBS in 2024. So please answer this. Yeah. Is that (laughs) that related to the microbiome or is that something separate? No, absolutely can be related to the microbiome. In fact, you know, the the new kind of definition of IBS um, is this dysfunction between the gut and the brain. Hmm. So everyone's gut and brain is constantly speaking. Whereas when you have IBS, it's thought to be dysregulated. Okay. it's like over-exaggerated. So things that normally kind of stimulate our gut-brain axis are things like caffeine, high-fat food, alcohol. In, in a, someone without IBS, that would be stimulating their gut-brain axis. When you've got um, IBS, those things kind of hyper-exaggerate that stimulation. Um, and, you know, the whole world of IBS, we've kind of now gotten to a level of, you know, historically it was someone who's just got a grumpy gut, got a bit of bloating or whatever. We now have this diagnostic criterion. It's called Rome 5 Diagnostic Criteria. And to, to meet that criteria for IBS, you obviously have to rule out things like celiac disease and inflammatory bowel disease. Um, but the other element to that is that you um, need to have um, stomach pain at least one day a week. Mm-hmm. And that has to have existed for at least three months mm. or so. So it has to, you actually have to have that stomach pain. Whereas a lot of people I see in clinic, you know, have things like bloating or constipation, but they don't have that stomach pain and therefore they don't actually meet, you know, the sure. historic criteria for, for IBS. Mm-hmm. I think it's like kind of a sexy condition now that everyone wants to, I know that's ridiculous. <laughs> like an excuse for whatever's going on when realistically there could be like a plethora of things that involve 
you know, whatever's going on in your gut um, that is causing you to, you know, poop up a storm or whatever, you know? Completely. As we continue to understand what exactly the microbiome is and how it helps and hinders us, can you tell me first about how it changes throughout our life? Because I imagine it's not the same mass of stuff throughout our lives. Like I was wondering on the way over here, I'm like, is every baby born with essentially the same stew of stuff in their bodies? Mm-hmm. And then as we get older, different things change it? Or is it like our th- fingerprints and everything else where we all have a different one? Mm. Yeah, look, we all do have a different gut microbiome. And in terms of how we start in life, so are we born vaginally? Are we by a C-section? Are we breastfed? Have we got antibiotics? Those sorts of things actually start to dictate the types oh, of wow. microorganisms wow, that okay. live live in our gut. So those sorts of things are really important. And we think by around the age of about three years is when um, you know toddlers start to have microbes that kind of, or the, the community that kind of reflects what it's going to look like into adulthood. Up to those first three years of life, it's really, really important for kind of shaping the microbiome. Um, so not to say that if you don't have the, a really good start in those first three years, you're doomed for the worst gut health forever. That's not true. You can impact your gut health, you know, f- you know, in into the future, into adulthood and all those sorts of things. But we do know that the first three years of life are incredibly important. Oh, that's um, really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So um is there any evidence so far of things we should be doing if we've got a little kid or, or we, you know, or is there any science to that yet? Like any, like, yes, we should be breastfeeding or like, et cetera. Yeah, like proactively. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, breast, I'm a breastfeeding mom. I know it's incredibly difficult um, to, to breastfeed, but we do know that um, breastfed babies do seem to have better gut health. And that's because breast milk, um, you contains, you know, all these different types of bacteria. So they contain the probiotics. They contain the prebiotics, which is all these different types of fertilizer for the gut bacteria. So they really do kind of give bubs that inoculation as well as the fertilizer to have really good gut health. But, you know, if you can't breastfeed for whatever reason, again, it's not all doom and gloom. When you start to, you know, wean the baby, including the different types of plants in their diet, you know, letting them actually play in, you know, the dirt, those sorts of things um we we think that actually this increase in rates of you know um different allergies and asthma and stuff like that might be because this hygiene hypothesis that we've kind of kept our babies too sterile you know all this debt hole and and covid has i believe that yeah Mm -hmm. um and in fact kids who grow up with furry pets seem to have you know lower rates of allergies and things like that and that's because they're exposed to more different types of microbes which help train their immune system, what they should react to and what they shouldn't react to. Are there other things then as we get older, as adults that are really bad for our microbiome? What are the things that we need to look out for? Yeah, look, you know, antibiotics is probably the most obvious one that people are aware of. Now, of course, antibiotics are life-saving. So if your doctor says you need to take antibiotics, like absolutely don't be silly and and deny yourself of that. But we certainly have seen that there's been this overuse of antibiotics mm, and, totally. and people have, you know, my husband's a GP and says that at least, you know, once a day, he's got people saying you know, requesting that they have antibiotics because they've got the flu. Well, we know that actually the flu doesn't yeah. really respond to antibiotics anyway because it's viral, blah, blah, blah. Um, so actually, you know, not 
you know, being cautious of, of the use of the, these antibiotics. But then, you know, all the other medications that people are taking, and again, many cases they're needed, sure. but things like um, protein pump inhibitors for things like reflux, again, mm-hmm. we think they are being over-prescribed. And for a lot of cases with reflux, of course, not all, but actually looking at life, li- um, diet and lifestyle factors actually can help a lot of people get on top of their reflux. Totally. And therefore they wouldn't need to take these medications. So we need to be aware that, you know, with all things, there's kind of the pros and the cons and and medication is no different. So ultimately, I think we reached the conclusion a lot that if you just try and eat more vegetables and things that are that you know are good for you, you're going to be doing well by your microbiome and, you know, not have to take the shortcuts that sometimes are unneeded medication. Yeah, look, I know I know it's kind of tempting because we all live very busy lives and we get overwhelmed, but it's exactly what you said, you know, diet and lifestyle um has a huge role to play in terms of, you know, treating and, and preventing a lot of these conditions that so many people in our today's society are suffering with these chronic conditions. That is a great point that makes me think about what are things that we can be eating or ingesting that are also going to be bad for us? I mean, I like, is alcohol bad? Alcohol is bad for everything (laughs) except for my spirit. Yeah. Like coffee, like give us some of the, like what are, ruin our lives basically. Tell us what we should do. No, 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 no. Look, the good news is when it comes to gut health, it's more about inclusion than exclusion. You know, the studies show that if we're adding in plenty of different types of plants, then actually we're going to have much better gut health than people who are fixating on just cutting out what they think is the bad foods. Mm. But if we delve a little bit deeper into things like alcohol and caffeine, um, you'll be happy to know that things like your red wine and your dark beers, having one standard drink of them a day actually has been associated with better gut health sure. because they contain oh. these different types of plant chemicals called polyphenols. But what a lot of people don't like to know is that if you have any more than one or two standard sure. drinks, those anti-inflammatory benefits of those polyphenols, which feed the gut bacteria, start to become pro-inflammatory. And that's because of the actual alcohol component. So, so my alcohol, three dirty martinis are not helping, is what you're saying. <laughs> probably not. Um, because the alcohol actually makes your gut lining a little bit leaky. Totally. So essentially what happens, it allows things from your gut to get into your blood system and trigger this inflammatory pathway that normally it wouldn't allow in. Um, But again, you know, if you take the alcohol out of your system, then that kind of leaky gut heals up. So what I say, if you're going to have, you know, a big night out, you are going to binge drink, which I do not recommend, but I am Australian, so I know that it happens, (laughs) um, is it kind of, you know, the day or 24 hours before you go on a have you know go to a, a party or whatever try really load up on plenty of those plant fibers um because essentially the bacteria then feed on them and they produce these beneficial chemicals known as short chain fatty acids which help strengthen your gut lining oh love that uh, and then of course the next day kind of beg your microbes for forgiveness and add in again plenty of plants things like baked beans and stuff they love and it helps really help heal that gut lining so is it is it that piecemeal sort of, is it that resilient in that if you fuck up one day or one night, you have something that's not good for your gut and then you're just good to it the next day, is your gut going to bounce back? 
it is going to bounce wow. back. But of course, if you're awesome. once a week having a big bender, yeah. then yeah. it's going to make it a little bit more tricky to bounce back. But if it's like, you know, once a month, you know, our, our gut microbes are very resilient. Um, so if you're chucking something, you know, really horrible at it, you know, every day, then, you know, even the most resilient people can't handle that. But if it's once a month, you know, like humans, we can handle once a month being really stressed generally. You know, I really believe in this just across the board, like the restorative um, kind of technique versus like cutting things out of your diet anyway. I'm never going to be a person that's just going to not eat cheeseburgers, right. right? So during the week, I like binge eat like raw veggies and things like that sometimes because I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this bad thing. or Like, I don't like to use that word, but I'm going to do this thing that's like red meat that has been known to be like slightly harmful, etc. And but I'm gonna try to do really good by my body for the rest of the time. And yeah. it, I love that. I think that's life, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, backed by the science. So um, you know, we should not think about, oh, this, you know, I have to be really feel really guilty about this mm-hmm. food. Um, and actually, if you have these negative emotions attached to certain foods, you know, even just thinking that can actually create more oh, gut totally. stress. I totally believe that. Yeah, that's called the nocebo effect, where if you think you're going to have something that's bad for you, um, even if it's not bad for you, but that belief system yeah. literally creates gut symptoms. And that's down to that two-way communication known as our gut-brain axis. I want to talk a little bit about the things that people have told me are good for my uh, microbiome and uh, because they have probiotics and things like that. And and you talked a little bit about probiotics. What are those exactly? Because I know they're naturally occurring and then also we can buy them at like, you know, on Amazon. Yeah, look, it's a really confused space, actually. And one that, you know, it's it's just not as black and white. So, yeah. you know, one one day the media will be saying probiotics are a waste of your money. And then the next day they'll be saying we should all be having them. They're life saving. Mm-hmm. And like most things, the truth is very much in the kind of in between. So we just need to start to reframe our view of probiotics. So it's kind of like vitamins and minerals. So if you have iron deficiency, you're not going to go and take a vitamin D supplement and expect your iron deficiency to improve, are you? Because they're different yeah. deficiency. They need different supplements. The same thing goes with probiotics. Each different type of bacteria and some probiotics and mm. yeast actually have different functionality. They do different things. So actually, we need to start being very prescriptive if we actually want the therapeutic benefit of probiotics. Um, An example is if you go on antibiotics for whatever reason, then there's really good evidence to take a specific probiotic throughout your antibiotic course and for a week after. And that type is called LGG or lactobacillus rhamnus GG. And you would take that around 5 to 10 billion units twice a day throughout the antibiotic period and for that week after. Now, I can see your faces going, what the heck? That sounds way too therapeutic, way too confusing. No, and no, I get I, it. I think I love it because you're explaining it in a way I know you're supposed to do this. I don't know why. So this is like really helpful. Yeah. So that's the way, you know, we, we need to treat this space. Um, so there's so many indications where actually there's no evidence to take a probiotic. So, for example, acne, um, you know, that seems to be one where people are like, oh, I'll take a probiotic because I know that, you know, it's linked with gut health and, and there's no current evidence. It might be because, you know, no bacteria can help that or the fact that actually we haven't identified the specific types of of microbes which can help with with, um, acne and, you know, other conditions like Parkinson's disease and all that Mm. sort of stuff. You know, there's there's no probiotic out there at the moment that can actually be therapeutic and helpful in that space. So I would say generally 
if you are healthy, um, then there's there's no really need to take a, a probiotic supplement. Um, outside of this, around seven different indications. So things like constipation, there's some evidence for um, for combating cold and flu. There's some evidence for a different a specific probiotic as well. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, the the space of the probiotics and the future of them. So is the idea then just to also get some of that naturally? Like you always hear about. That's what I was going to ask. Eat too. a ton of pickles. Eat a lot of yogurt. These places where probiotics. I love are, kimchi. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the way to go? Yeah. So in terms of the fermented food space, absolutely. I'm a big advocate of having fermented foods. Now, they're slightly different from probiotics in terms. Of, of the definition because you know if you go and make kimchi which is like a fermented cabbage or kefir which is fermented mm. milk if you make that um at your house and your friend makes it at their house it probably contains different types of totally, microbes because yeah. they actually kind of get picked up from the environment as well as like the starter culture right so actually you don't really truly know the types of microbes in that whereas the probiotics for the actual you know scientific definition there has to be the specific strain you need to know the exact functionality of it and has to have shown health benefits but for fermented foods absolutely i think we should all be having fermented foods you know a couple of times a day in fact research from stanford university have highlighted that people who have a diet high in these fermented foods um have lower markers of uh, inflammation as well as a more diverse gut microbiome, which is, you know, what we're linking with better gut health is is more different types of microbes within us. I'm hearing a lot and absorbing a lot about like diversity being really important here. And I love that because I'm starting to think that I have a routine with my vegetables. I like the same ones every week, basically love like chopped up bell peppers, love cucumbers, et cetera. But would it benefit me to get one of those like farm share boxes where it's all these different vegetables I don't really know and and start eating my vegetables like that? Would that do you think would be helpful? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So we that. do know that people who eat more different types of plants a week have better gut health. In fact, one study showed that people who ate 30 different types of plants a week had better gut health than those who ate the same 10 on repeat and they even looked at vegans so those who are 100 plant-based versus omnivores and they found that you know being a vegan didn't necessarily mean someone had better gut health the key predictor was that plant diversity Mm. i love taking down vegans on the show anyway i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) and when we talk about the um you know, that plant diversity concept. It's not just your veg. In fact, there's six different plant groups. I call them the super six. Now I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you <laughs> what are the super six, um, but they are your whole grains, your nuts and seeds, your fruit, your veg, your legumes, and your herbs and your spices. Now each different category actually provides your gut microbes with different types of fertilizer. So what I get people to do is, Firstly, think about just diversifying their plants and so trying to get in 30 different types of plants across the week and each one kind of counts as a point. Um, and then once people nail that, I think, okay, well, what about are you getting something from the Super 6 most days? And most people actually aren't having things like your legumes, which yeah. actually are really important for feeding specific types of bacteria that have these specific functions. So if we want this diverse range of kind of bacteria in our gut, which has shown to have a diverse range of skills and kind of like superpowers, then we need to feed them that diverse range of fertilizers. Otherwise, they'll kind of die off and won't grow. I have never heard that before. This is so interesting. And I'm kind of loving the 
gut microbiome's attitude. Like she's like a hot girl living in us. Like she loves diversity. She loves to have fun. She loves a lot of different kinds of foods. (laughs) I love her. You are ridiculous. (laughs) Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed Designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Yahoo Finance. Raj, I've got a question that I've been asking myself a lot recently. Tell me. Am I investing wrong? Ooh, I see what you did there. But I'm sincerely asking because, look, I have investments. I have an account here, a 401k there. And I'm really lucky I don't have any crushing debt. But until recently, I haven't had the confidence that I've been doing it right. I know what you mean. We all want to make sure we're making good financial decisions, not just doing whatever Susie Orman told us to do 10 years ago. (laughs) Exactly. But that's why I've been using Yahoo Finance. Tell me more about it. Well, with Yahoo Finance, I've been able to consolidate all of my accounts into one place. And I got to tell you something. It's been so much easier. Okay, Yahoo Finance. It's giving nostalgia. Absolutely. You know, I found Yahoo Finance to be incredibly helpful for tracking everything I need with all of my money. And as you probably know at this point, I'm quite wealthy. I know, spiritually and literally. I am not a wealthy one percenter yet. So would the service be good for me still? Oh, 100%. Yahoo Finance is good for everyone, from the very seasoned investor or just a normie like you who's looking for a little extra guidance. It gives you all the tools and info you need. So if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like Yahoo Finance will give me a holistic look at the financial news cycle, original editorial perspectives, and so much more. That's exactly right. And let's just say Yahoo Finance is going to be the perfect place to link all your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including your 401k and other investments. Hell yeah. I cannot wait to make it rain with the help of Yahoo Finance. (laughs) So for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. yahoofinance.com. Once again, that's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Am I Doing It Wrong?, what would you say is the most surprising thing that you've found about gut health? I mean, you've published over 50 mm-hmm. papers. You've been doing all this research. Is it the mind 
gut connection is, I mean, that that's shocking to me so that like yoga can affect it. But like, what would you say that in all your research, you found the thing that surprised you the most that like this actually has an effect on gut health. And I didn't know that, or I didn't think that would be true. Yeah. I think one of the things, um, that's kind of just recently I've kind of been looking more into is the estrotabulome. So the fact that our gut microbes actually recycle estrogen, and this is thought to be obviously more important in in humans, but obviously also males, um, there is an element to play there, but things like going through, um, going through menopause, that our microbes actually help recycle estrogen. And, and we're now seeing that people who have better gut health seem to not only delay the natural menopause, but have lower, you know, um, symptoms when they are going through through the menopause. So I think for me, really starting to understand how we can manipulate our hormones via targeting our gut microbes is, is really exciting. And then also some other work that um, my team are doing at King's, you know, in the research world, who are understanding that it's not just the types of microbes that live within you, it, um, it's the functionality. And, and that's why I think a lot of these microbiome tests, you know, although they've been commercialized, they're still ahead of you, you know, the science, because what we're understanding is that identical bacteria can actually act very different in two different people's guts because mm. it's about the environment. Similarly, um, two very different bacteria can actually produce some of the same chemicals and do some of the same things. So just having these tests, which looks at the types of microbes in your gut, really isn't giving us the full picture. And and some of the work that we did highlighted that looking at the chemicals the bacteria produced actually could help predict how people were going to respond to different dietary interventions um, versus just looking at the types of bacteria that were there. I think that's such an important point. Um, I think the wellness industrial complex, as we like to call it, like, puts out a lot of products that feeds into our fear and mm. our thirst to be healthier, right? And we really have to look at them and be like, is this real that I'm spending $99 on? Is it just stoking something? How much science is there? And it's important for us to look into it. And that brings me to, you know, social media and yes. gut talk because everyone on TikTok, which is cool because it's like a younger audience who are engaged in their health. Love that, right? But there's a lot of misinformation floating around out there. Um, is there anything in particular that you feel like is a dangerous myth or you want to dispel? Yeah, because also a lot of these people have no medical background or training. I mean, yeah. And they just, you know, have a ring light and have decided <laughs> that they're going to tell us what to do. And that seems really problematic. It's a little culty. Yeah. A little culty, yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because it's helpful by social media that's allowed us to spread some of the science and get the messages out there. But you're right, like there is a lot of myths. Um, and I think probably one of the ones which I see most damaging in my own clinical practice is a lot of these like, you know, restrictive diets and yeah. food intolerance tests um, where, you know, you, you send some blood away and um, they suggest they can tell you which intolerances you've got. Um, but these are completely invalid. In fact, the World Immunology Association um, has actually highlighted that they are invalid. They, they've said, you know, you should not be doing this. Yet so many people, millions of people are taking these tests. Um, and I see so many come to me in clinic who have cut out all these really beneficial foods because they've been oh, told no. they've got intolerance to them when actually these foods are really beneficial for their gut microbes. Oh, um, wow. 
So I think really being cautious around, you know, restricting and cutting out foods of their diet, you know, the same we see with gluten, you know, it's been so heavily demonized. Um, And, you know, gluten is a protein. And if you have celiac disease, yes, you need to cut it out. And if you've got non-celiac gluten sensitivity, um, again, you might want to reduce down, but that's, you know, celiac is about 1% of the population. Non-celiac gluten sensitivity is thought to be no more than 6% of the population yet you know, 30% of people are cutting out gluten. Yeah. And, you know, the studies have shown that if you're cutting out gluten unnecessarily, um, you're actually reducing down your gut microbes because you're cutting out some beneficial grains like, you know, a lot of the different types of oats and and um, barley and rye, uh, as well as obviously your wheat, um, which actually feed our gut bacteria, not the gluten component, but the other types of polyphenols and, and fibres within these grains. So being cautious about not cutting things out because you think they're bad for you, because actually that could have a negative impact on your gut microbes. So if something is, you are sensitive to something and and something is ruining your, you know, morning poo experience or you're having a lot of stomach pain, would you suggest um, eliminating one little thing at a time to figure out what it is versus just assuming it's something? Yeah, absolutely. So we call it the three R process. Mm -hmm. Um, So you would record everything you're eating and your symptoms. And then if you see there's a correlation, you would restrict it for anywhere between two to four weeks, depending on what it is. And then the third step is really, really important. And that is reintroducing. So even if you get that symptom benefit, you still need to reintroduce that food to make sure sure that it's not just a chance finding, but actually really is that food culprit. And even things like lactose intolerance, so that's an intolerance to milk sugar, actually it's still worth trying to include small amounts of lactose in your diet um, because actually that can help um, your microbes actually start to metabolize and become more efficient at um at using it and suggested that it might be a little bit like a prebiotic of fertilizer for the gut bacteria. So actually when it comes to intolerances, which is different to allergies, so allergies involve the immune system, Mm -hmm. intolerances don't involve the immune system. Often it means we don't have enough of a certain enzyme to digest it. Actually including small amounts of it may have a health benefit. You know that I was lactose intolerant for 20 years and then I went to Thailand and I got an iced coffee and I asked for soy milk and I drank the whole thing. And he came over, the waiter came over and said, oh, did you want soy or whole milk? And I said, oh, soy. And he said, oh, sorry, that's whole milk. Is that going to be a problem? And I was like, yes, I'm going to be shitting my brains out in like a random Thai bathroom. But you didn't. But I didn't. So then I came home and I didn't try it in Thailand, but I came home and then I experimented with lactose and I'm not lactose intolerant anymore. And I learned that it can go away over time, which I didn't know. That is so cool. It's really, it's really crazy. Okay. I was reading something about how slowly and how long you chew your food also has an impact on your gut health. Is that true? It is. Yeah. Yeah. And that really just comes down to digestion. So not only do we start to physically break down the food in our mouth, but we have enzymes in our saliva that start to chemically break it down. So um, one study looked at, I think it was almonds, and they compared people who chewed the almonds 10 times versus 40 times. And they showed that if you chewed it 40 times, you actually absorb so much more of that good nutrition versus if you only chewed it like 10 times, you're malabsorbing a lot of it and not getting that full kind of health potential. Um, so chewing your food is, is really important for extraction of a lot of that nutrition instead of pooping a lot of that out. 
That's hard to do though. Like I have practiced this. Also, I don't tend to eat until I'm really hungry. And then I've counted, I will chew like six times. It's like nowhere (laughs) close to even 20. And that is like the hardest thing for me. You're just sitting there for like an hour. Completely. It's like an entire hard boiled egg is just going down my throat like an anaconda. Fully anaconda. That's how I eat. So can you help I get it. I get it. So there's like loads of different like chewing apps out there. What I say to a lot of my clients in clinic is just focus on the first two mouthfuls of every meal. Like you're never going to be, you know, doing 30 chews um, with every mouthful, Um, but just focusing on the first kind of two. And that starts to build the habit and then, you know, you, you kind of then start to do more and more in each uh, meal that you're having. So count next time, literally count how many times you're chewing it, add an extra three chews, and then every meal just focus on the first, you know, two mouthfuls, having that extra three. And then if every, you know, couple of weeks you can add an extra one or two chews, then by, you know, six months, you're, you're hitting quite a good number of chews. God, this is like squat reps. This is like <laughs> being at the gym. It is. But you know what I love about this show is that if I do say so myself, <laughs> is that <laughs> so often we have experts come on and they say things like you're saying, where like, you don't have to take on the world to make a change. Mm-mm. Like I could. Do, add three more chews. I could add three more chews and be totally fine. I can add a couple more vegetables per week yeah. and and be doing better. Yeah. And so, like, I love the idea that like you don't have to like throw everything out and start over. Yeah, there are really tangible active ways to, to do it better. And it doesn't have to be that hard. And yeah, it's less intimidating. Like now yeah. that I think of my microbiome as Megan the Stallion, like I want <laughs> to keep her happy. Yeah. It's not this like daunting cloud where I'm like, am I screwing myself over Completely. every meal? Yeah. The last thing I'm curious about is how stress plays a role in our gut health. Mm. I mean, one, we're all stressed out all the time. I'm afraid to hear what Megan has to say about yes. this. Yeah. What have you learned? Yeah, look, it is it is one that we do need to kind of get a handle on if we want to have good gut health because we've got these millions of nerves that connect our gut and our brain. It's called the enteric nervous system. So if we're like really stressed up here, it literally strangles our gut. Um, and particularly those who find that they get gut symptoms, you know, no matter what they eat, having kind of this ultra sensitive enteric nervous system, you know, is just exacerbated by stress. But even if you don't, you know, get direct gut symptoms, we know that when we are stressed, our cortisol levels increase. Um, And again, that can make our gut a little bit more leaky and permeable. But, you know, we take that stress out, the leakiness kind of closes up and it's all fine. But the issue is most of us have low-grade chronic, chronic stress. And that means our gut is kindly, you know, long-term kind of open, allowing things into our body, creating that low-grade inflammation. Um, so it's not a great thing um, for, for our gut health or any facet of our health. So, you know, it's I'm sure you guys have, have heard all the kind of tips and tricks around things like, you know, five minutes of diaphragmic breathing um, mm-hmm. can be really helpful for reducing, you know, that cortisol spike that can occur when we are stressed up here as well as that strangulation um, and that diaphragmic breathing. So breathing into your belly, if you're getting gut symptoms, like 30% of people who probably listening to this do like bloating or, you know, stomach cramps and stuff like that, doing the five minutes of diaphragmic breathing um, before your meal. And if you can, after the meal can really help clinical trials have shown it helps, you know, reduce your symptoms quite significantly. Is that something people should look up online or can you tell us how to do that right now? What What is diaphragmic yeah. breathing? 
Yeah, diaphragm, essentially it's breathing through your tummy. So if you put your hand on your chest and your hand on your tummy, most of us are actually, when we are stressed, we breathe on our uh, through our chest. So you'll notice that only the hand on your chest is moving. What you want to do is keep the, the hand on your chest kind of stable, uh, not moving still, uh, and only kind of expand out your stomach. And that's called diaphragm breathing. Or you can just do it a YouTube. Megan, is there anything that we you feel like we didn't touch on that we like any huge things that we should get into? Not huge things. I want people to kind of, you know, take home that this whole new world of science is is really empowering. You know, we are in control of so much of our health that we didn't realize before, even things like our mental health, actually probably one, you know, empowering things because we know that one in four people are likely to have a mental health event each and every year. And, um, you know, as a clinician, I was always told that, yeah, diet may have a bit of a role in terms of things like our mental health, but let's not overstate it. Until a study came out called the SMILES trial. It was a really cool study. Um, it was actually undertaken by some colleagues in Australia um, from the um, Food and Mood Institute. And what they did is randomized people who had moderate severe depression um, to either getting this gut-boosting diet or getting befriending type of counselling. So there's two different groups. And it was really important that they had the befriending counselling because it was to act as a control and to make sure that the benefit of, of the diet group was because of the actual food and not just because they were seeing, you know, a dietitian. Right. So two interventions, they followed them for 12 weeks, either getting the diet or the befriending counselling. When they uh, reassessed their mental health, they showed that those in the diet group, the gut-boosting diet group, it was over 30% of them had a significant improvement in their depression scores, which would yeah. have classified them as no longer clinically depressed. And in the um, befriending counseling group, that was only about 8%. Wow. And yeah, I just find that that, you know, is such an empowering study to show that if you, you know, do have, you know, moderate severe diagnosed depression, diet can have a really big role to play. Now, I always want to make the disclosure that everyone stayed on their medications, the antidepressants. So if anyone's listening to this, you would never, ever go cold turkey. But I want you to be empowered by the fact that, you know, focusing on this gut-boosting diet, including those super six, plenty of the dietary fibers in your diet, actually can have clinically meaning improvements in in your mental health. And certainly in my own clinical practice with the support of the prescribing uh, medic, we've actually gotten people off some of their antidepressants who've wanted to come off sure. um, just by focusing on, on their diet and how they're treating their gut microbes. I love that you say that because I, I really am an advocate for people taking medication when they need to, you know, um, for mental health conditions. Mm-hmm. But I think like everything else, it's it's a holistic approach. Yep. You want to make sure, and, and I absolutely believe in that connection between what we're putting in our bodies and how we feel in our heads, you mm-hmm. know, like that makes, I'm so glad that, that there are studies being facilitated like that right now because people didn't care that much before or think it was real. But it's, it is really empowering to think about that. Absolutely. It's starting to like filter through medical guidelines as well, where they're actually going, hey, you know, we've kind of overlooked this as a therapy. Um, and before perhaps people go on these antidepressants, maybe if they want to, trying these, you know, these diets, these clinically backed diets instead to see whether that's enough of improvement for them. Megan, thank you so much for this. I, I knew nothing before. I, I did not either. And I came in here quite confident. So this is, but again, super empowering. I feel, you know, excited to try some new things. Yeah. Well, enjoy guys. You know, there's so much more in store for our gut microbiome that we haven't even discovered yet, but uh, they certainly are worth paying attention to. 
Totally. We'll bring you back in 10 years and we'll see where we're at then. We'll all still be cute. (laughs) It's time for Better in Five. These are your top five takeaways from this episode. Number one, your gut microbiome is not just about what's happening in your stomach. It affects every single part of your body. Number two, diversity is key for gut health. You want lots of different kinds of microbes and bacteria churning inside of you. Number three, a probiotic might be useful in specific situations, but for many people, you can get everything you need for a healthy gut from a diverse diet. Number four, to that end, Megan says we should aim for 30 or more different kinds of plants per week and make sure you're including the super six. And number five, don't be an anaconda like Noah and I are. (laughs) Chew your food thoroughly. This can really benefit your gut. Okay, Raj. So have you been doing gut health wrong? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) 155%. Um, But I think what feels really empowering to me is the the gut health and mental health connection that has continued to be researched. I'm really excited to kind of work on a little more meditation for my gut health and just overall, you know, well-being and things like that. That's where I want to zoom in because that feels like very, uh, like I can have a little control over my anxiety. What mm-hmm. about you? I just felt like this is one of those episodes we've done where I I learned so much. Like at every turn, yeah. every time Megan opened her mouth, I was like, oh, oh, yeah. oh. And I love this idea of those, like so many of our experts, like I said, that she's not being restrictive. Yeah, She's saying there are ways to do this better, which is the whole point of this show, but you don't have to cut everything out. So yeah. if you're going to have something that maybe isn't as good for your gut, then just treat your gut better the day before, the day after. Um, and it's so resilient. It's more resilient than I thought it was. Yeah. I just had this idea that if you were shitty to it, it was just like, it's over. Yeah. It's going finger. home. Yeah, yeah, literally. But no, it sounds like we have control and we just got to be nice to it. Totally. I love the the thought of like some bok choy with your bacon. Like this <laughs> yes. is, you know, doable. We're, we're trying to live out here and be happy. Completely. Anyway, until next time. As long as there are things to get wrong, Raj and I will be right here to help you do them better. Love you guys. Do you have something you think you're doing wrong? Email us at amidoingitwrong at huffpost.com and let us know. <laughs>